0: So uh, so today we are finishing up a series called Priests. Uh, we have been kind of going through this, so, so just to kind of give you kind of an update, awareness of what's going to be going on. So so this week we are, today, sorry, we are finishing up a series called Priests. Next week we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from Leviticus. Uh, we're going to be doing a four-week four series on discernment. So the New Testament talks a lot about uh, discernment, what it, what it looks like to discern well, to, to consider truth from error, uh, the desire of the Lord and, uh, and his saints that we would be the kind of people who learned to discern and so, uh, so we're going to be examining that over the course of the next four weeks after this week but today we are finishing up this series on priests and what we're doing what we've been doing is we've been looking at when God installed the Old Testament priesthood what it means that he set up this group of people who were meant to help people relate to him Right, but we're considering its implications for us as New Testament believers because now we don't have like a priesthood of a small select group of people who are endowed with a special level of authority. All of us, everybody who believes in Jesus is a priest. Right? Everybody who follows Jesus is a priest, which means that we've been given a particular task. We're part of what the New Testament calls a royal priesthood. So in week one, we established this working idea of what a priest is. We asked this question, why do we need priests? And I told you, well, we discovered together, priests help people relate to God according to his word, right? We, We come alongside, we exist in this world to come alongside others and help them relate to God, help them get to know God. But we just kind of don't do that willy-nilly, right? We do it according to God's word, right? God has given instruction uh, about these things. And, And so though the New Testament priesthood that we're all a part of may look different from the Old Testament priesthood in many significant ways, both Old Testament priests and New Testament priests have the responsibility to carry these things out according to God's word, right, that's, that's what we're given, and so uh, we still have this job to do, we have this purpose that we're called into, and so today we're going to zero in on exactly why and the importance of the reality that we do these things according to his word. So first I'm going to tell you about a terribly annoying quality that I have, terribly annoying quality, uh, a quality that might make Many of you feel sorry for my wife after I finish you telling this story. So sometimes when I'm engaged in conversation with somebody, I, I do this uh, terrible thing where I listen to you and as I'm listening to you, I think I understand your perspective. I think I get where you're coming from. And so, so I'm nodding along and, and sometimes I'm even repeating to you what you're saying to, just to make sure that I understand. and. And then, like, eventually, I'll think I understand so well that I might start finishing your sentences for you. Yeah, okay, so I see, I see people pointing fingers. That's good. So some people know what this is like. So you'll be chatting right along, right, telling a story, and I think I'll see where the story is going, and so I'll fill in the blank. And, of course, you know what the problem with that is. It's that I'm wrong. When I fill in the blank, I am wrong. Let's say like 95% of the time, at least in conversations with my wife. And so, uh, so it puts me in a position where now I look like I think that I know what you are going to say better than you will be able to say it in the next three seconds. Right, and so so I get to it before you do, and of course I am disappointed when I discover that I am wrong, and now I've made myself look a fool by trying to appear that I'm listening to you instead of you know just listening to you, and uh, and so my wife deals with this more than anyone else, and more often than not I am finding myself. I, I've started to get to the point where I don't, I don't stop finishing the sentences, I don't stop filling in the blanks, I'm not quite there yet, but I am at the point where I will do it and then immediately say I'm sorry after I do it because I recognize what I've done, right? That, that moment of pride of being quick to speak and slow to listen, it presents a problem, right? It creates a communication barrier. So today's story is in some ways like that, but the stakes are way higher, right? Just way, way higher. Because the one that we're relating to is God, and the thing that we are called to listen to is his word. So Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, just some, some background, some context. Uh, Aaron has four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Mishael, and Elzaphan. Uh, that makes five priests in Israel in total because the priests in the Old Testament system were all descendants of Aaron. They were the sons of Aaron. And so when God God has just installed the very first priesthood, and so Aaron and all of his sons are the priests in this new system that he has set up. So uh, what we have now, we're having named Nadab and Abihu for us. That means that these are two of the five priests in total that exist right now in Israel. So what what did they do? What about them? Well, it goes on in verse 1, it says, Each took his censer. The censer is like this, uh, this orb that has burning incense in it. Uh, uh, you would see smoke uh, kind of coming out of the censer. It was a, a means of worshiping, right? There was a, it was a tool for worship in the tabernacle. Right, so each took his censer and, and they put fire in it and laid incense on it. Okay, so, so just to get some background here, what has just happened is perhaps the most significant event in Israel's history until Jesus is born, right? Like what just took place in Israel's history is God has kind of created this system by which his people are able to relate to him. He's given them this gift of this uh, way to come near to him and then to put his stamp of approval on that system he has shown up like the glory of the Lord came out and, and set the altar on fire as a way of saying, look, I agree that this is good. And you now have a way to relate to me. Up to this point, Israel did not have a clear way to relate to God. But now he's given them clear steps, a clear pathway for them to have relationship with him. And so this is huge for Israel. This, what was started when God lit the altar on fire, it was momentous for them. It was God saying, yes, I want relationship with you to his people. So it was really, really significant. Really significant. And, uh... And so everybody has just witnessed this happen. God was, had finally officially made his home with his people, which meant that uh, open to them was opportunity for cleansing and forgiveness and atonement. And so uh, what happens here might actually make us think back to what happened in Eden. After God created everything, God was in Eden in the garden with people, right? They shared in relationship together. And and part of the story of Scripture is just telling us what does it look like for God to be with people when people have consistently rejected him. And so what we have in Leviticus chapter 9 is God saying, I am here and I am with them. Like, we we are getting back to what I had intended. And so so how many... Days did it take God to make the earth? Anybody? Six. Six, and then he rested on the seventh, right? Yeah. And so what did they just do? Well, they did uh, this whole like seven-day celebration, right? Where every day they practice this ordination offering, and, 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 and then on the eighth day, they're having this massive celebration where finally God comes and lights the altar on fire. So understand what is likely. I, I, I set all of that up, so that we can get inside the mind of these two priests, Nadab and Abihu. Because from their perspective, their hearts are full of joy. The the reality that they've finally been reunited with God. Right, God has finally shown up. They finally have access to him. All of Israel can finally come near to where God is. And so their thought is, what they are trying to do is they're saying, let's worship God. Let's extend this celebration. Let's do something more. Let's do something as an expression of this joy that we have. Let's do something as an expression to God of our experience that we have because he has finally shown up. Let's take what's in our hearts and give it to God in a special way. So I just want to give you a warning this morning. This warning is something that we need to look out for. Nadab and Abihu have good intentions. I think we could at least say that, or at least the the facade of good intentions. What's in their heart from their perspective? They want to do something good and right. So here's my warning. Good intentions plus disregard for God's word equals rebellion. Good intentions plus disregard for God's word equals rebellion. You don't have to look far back in scripture from this moment to see that this holds to be true you could first start with Adam and Eve right where the serpent is speaking to Eve and saying you won't surely die God knows that you will be like him knowing good and evil you can eat from the tree it's okay you can disregard God's word it's not a big deal and so she thinks yeah it would be a good thing for me to know good and evil I'm gonna go ahead and disregard God's word, right? And then you have the the story of Cain where um, God literally warns Cain, hey, sin is crouching at your door. Like you, you need to do what is good because sin is crouching at your door and you need to rule over it. You need to look out because rebellion is just around the corner. I've told you what is good. Listen to my word. And then of course, if you go all the way to Israel at Mount Sinai, Every time we've talked about uh, how they built this golden calf and everybody was worshiping the golden calf, the intentions of their heart were, we need to see God. We We need a sense that God is with us. Right? If we do that, then we can continue on believing that God is going to take care of us, and so we're going to build this golden calf, and that would be a good thing for us. right? That would help us be able to believe more firmly in what he has said. But their good intentions all came with a disregard for God's word. So Leviticus 10.1, each took his censer, Nadab and Abihu, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So a few things to note here in this moment. There are some clues given in other passages later as to what exactly they did. But in this moment, we're not told what exactly they did. The exact details of their kind of missing the point are not given to us. And there's a reason that the exact details are not given to us. And that point is emphasized in two words. Number one, unauthorized. And number two, he had not commanded. Those two ideas represent for us the primary problem with what Nadab and Abihu are doing. Later, we'll come to figure out kind of the specifics of the exact things that they did and why God lashes out against them. But at the core of this story is the idea that, number one, God had not authorized the kind of thing that they brought. And number two, as if to emphasize the same thing again, he had not commanded them to do so. So, a heads up, this story the way this is set up, uh, the way the whole story is set up, it's intentionally bringing us back to Genesis, right? It's intentionally drawing us back to the beginning when God is with his people, right? And so when the tabernacle is built and the fire of God comes out and lights up the altar, right, it's creating this idea that, yes, God is finally with us again, right? It's drawing our attention back to the garden. It's meant to make us think, in fact, even if you, like, if you get into Hebrew, and we're not going to do that this morning, but if you read specific words, there are specific words in this story that connect directly back to the Genesis story. And that's important, because the same problem that we encountered in Genesis 3, after God was with his people in loving relationship, is the same problem that we encounter here, Right, God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you will surely, yeah. And the serpent says, well, you will not surely die. Number one. And number two, you will, in fact, be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only will you not die, but you will know what is right and what is wrong. And so they ate and their pattern of rebellion becomes the pattern of rebellion that all of humanity inherits throughout history. All right, so this is what this means for me and you, and this is what this means for Nadab and Abihu. There is a reality of me being born as a sinner that has caused me to make some basic assumptions about my life and the world. And those basic assumptions create a framework upon which the entirety of my life is built. So I just kind of want to give this to you. You have this in your notes this morning. But this is the framework of human rebellion. I want to talk to you about our framework that rebellion is actually built up on. Our framework starts with a foundation of the self. Right? This is the serpent saying to Eve, you will not surely die. Right? We say, this life is mine. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Life is what I make of it. I don't need God. I have life independent of him, unto myself. This is not death. This is life. In fact, we might even say, like I have said before, this is my life. Who is God to tell me what to do? So we start with a foundation of the self, and from that foundation, we think we know what is good, and that's the next thing that the serpent tells Eve. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? There is a way that seems right to us, and many times, it comes, by the way, with the best of intentions, right? We say, you know what, I should, right? I should be able to live in accordance with how I feel. That seems right to me. I should not have to sacrifice my own well-being for the sake of others. That seems right to me. I should be able to love who I want to love the way I want to love them because that seems right to me. I should have the same opportunities as everybody else because that's what seems right to me. I should be able to express my authentic self because that seems right to me. And so I come up with all of these definitions of good because it's what seems right to me. So from our knowledge, if you want to call it that, of what is good, we discern the things that must be true. Is it, this whole thing, by the way, I mean, we're going to build it out later, but this whole thing is backwards, actually, from how God builds a framework, just so you know that. So, so we start with ourselves we determine what seems right to us and from there, we start defining reality, right? So from our knowledge of what is right, we discern what must be true. So I just wanna let you know, uh, like there's a lot of talk about, oh, we live in a post-truth era right now. Like I don't wanna burst your bubble. We've always lived in a post-truth era. That's just kind of been the circumstances of the world that we live in. Right? Humanity has always been this way. We are letting our own perceptions of what is right shape how we define reality. Right? This is why in the news we have conversations about facts and alternative facts. Right? This is why we can't agree in political discourse about what is and is not true because we want truth to serve our version of what is right. And so we take the facts that suit our version of what is right and we say, here is reality. This is why conversations about gender and marriage are warped like they are. This is why we can look at history and observe people who committed atrocities in the name of the best intentions. Okay, so... From our knowledge of what is right, we discern what must be true. And if this is our framework, we don't actually need God, right? Like if this is what we've built, or to put it another way, God can become whatever is convenient for our framework, right? So, so God can be a woman, God can be a warmonger, God can be a multiplicity of God, gods who extend blessings to particular parts of my life. God can become a purveyor of my personal wealth and happiness, or God can just not exist because we don't need him, right? That is what happened in the garden. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel, and that's what here is, is happening in God's own sanctuary, Right, it's people coming up with their own definitions of what is right and discerning truth based on what they think in their heart is right. And so, back to Leviticus 10. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay, so let's just consider now the specifics of what they did. Here, with the best of intentions, I think Nadab and Abihu did about five things. Number one, they failed to listen to God as he was giving instruction. If you read the way that the text is set up, the moment where God's fire comes out and and consumes the altar or what's on the altar, um, like, God is not done speaking to his people. Like the situation is not finished. It's it's clear that there was intended to be kind of a continuation or a a next step or some other command that was given. But Nadab and Abai who aren't interested in listening to what comes next, they fill in the blank for themselves. So that's the first thing. They, They fail to listen to God in the midst of him giving instruction. Like he is actively instructing people there's everything about the, the passage would lead us to think that he has something else to say after all that has been accomplished. But they fail to listen. The second thing that they do, they take a role that is not theirs to take. The offering of fire and incense in the sanctuary with the censer, that was the role of the high priest. That was not their role. They took their father's role. They usurped their father's authority in going in in this way. The third thing that happened, so, so maybe they wouldn't have been able to put together that last piece that, they, that I mentioned, but they would be able to put together this piece. They boldly go to a place that only Moses, so far, has been allowed to go to. And from this point forward, only Aaron will be allowed to go to. They go into, the, or they attempt to go into, the most holy place. That's what they're doing, and we can infer that from Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is giving instruction. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death, spoiler alert, the death of the two sons of Aaron. Uh, Verse 2, and the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the most holy place inside the veil. It's not saying that he can never come, but it's saying that he just can't do it whenever he wants to right? Uh, this is setting up instruction for the day of atonement, the one day per year that the high priest can go into the most holy place to make atonement and to, to go before the Lord. So uh, he can't come at any time into the most holy place before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die, right? So it's hearkening back to a death of people to say you want to be careful not to die when this happens. And then it says, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place. So it's giving specific instructions for how people are to go into the most holy place, implying that Nadab and Abihu uh, went ahead and decided they would do it, thinking that somehow they should be able to even though only Moses has been able to go there so far. And even though, by the way, every time God's presence is in a place, God says, hey, set a boundary around this place and make sure that you tell people, don't cross the boundary. Because if they cross the boundary, I will break out against them. Right? He gives that warning many times, but somehow they think it's okay. The fourth thing that they do is that they offer fire to God on their own terms meaning they become the ones who define the worship liturgy instead of letting God define the worship liturgy. And then the fifth thing that they do, which actually might be like the first thing if you want to kind of deal with their lapse in judgment here. They got drunk. Right right after right after this moment in verse 8 God Says, okay, stop everything for just a second. New rule, new rule for the priests. Verse 8 The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout the generations. Why? You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. What we are intended to infer from this is that the reason that they acted on what they thought was right was from this lapse of judgment because they were drunk, and so God is saying to Moses, hey, new rule for all priests whoever serve in this, when you're serving in the tent, you can't drink before you come in here, because to have that kind of lapse in judgment is actually quite dangerous for you, right? So in this moment of terrible judgment that is undoubtedly reinforced by their drunkenness, this is what happened. They defined reality based on their own good intentions. That is exactly what happened. They, surely God doesn't care that much about this. Surely God will be okay if we take some liberties. He knows what's in our hearts, right? God knows what's in my heart. Surely God isn't so old-fashioned as to care if I disregard this. Surely God must have been mistaken when he was talking about that. Surely God wasn't referring to my situation when he warned about this. And so we think we know what is right. And we walk around thinking that we're entitled to God conforming to our perspective. If we approach him like that, we've fundamentally misunderstood what it means to live in relationship with him. It is not God's job to conform to our picture of what is right. We are the broken ones. We are the ones who are misinformed, not him. So here's the thing. God is gracious enough to be intent on demolishing our rebellious framework. He does not want us to think like that. He does not want us to understand our lives like that. He does not want us to persist in putting up with us being our own foundation. He is not content with his priests doing what is right in their own eyes. And so Leviticus 10, 2, And fire came out from before the Lord. The same fire, by the way, that had just consumed the altar. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. The holiness of God is real. He is dangerous. He is devastating. And he will not endure with rebellion forever. There's a reason why so many times in Leviticus, you, I mean, you may have noticed it so far, but if you just read all the passages, so many times it says this at the end of a section, and they did all that God had commanded. Or it says, they did so according to the word of the Lord, or they did so according to the word of Moses. I mean, this is why after it gives a command and then it, it tells us that they did the thing, it repeats every single step of the command that was given to make sure that we know that they did everything exactly like God had commanded it to be done. This is being emphasized again and again and again. This is why um, the the priests, in their ordination ceremony, they had the blood that was uh, put on the ear, the earlobe, and the blood that was put on the thumb of their right hand and the blood that was put on their right foot, right? Because that was to remind them, you are to listen only to the voice of the Lord, not your own voice. You are to do only the things that the Lord tells you to do. You are to walk only in the paths that the Lord has for you. And let's not forget like all of the reminders that are given to the priests to do what God says, least you die or least God break out against you. So so let's just ask the question then here, like right here in this moment, why now? Like, because what Nadab and Abihu do is not new, right? It's not like they're suddenly the first ones who have rebelled or who have decided that they know better than God does, but all of a sudden here in this moment, God decides to break out. So, I mean, he has shown himself to be merciful, so why does God, the merciful God, kill two people who seemingly were acting with the best of intentions? I want to give you the reason and this is the reason God set this up at the very beginning of this system because it's like this as go the priests so go the people as go the priests so go the people so if Israel is able to witness God's priests making up their own rules for worship they will believe that God finds the framework acceptable If the priests do what is right in their own eyes and experience no consequence, the people will think, oh, then I can do what is right in my own eyes with no consequence. So, church, before we move too quickly to concepts of grace and forgiveness, which are so important, we need to sit with this. This awareness of the extent of God's holiness should actually rend us it should cause us to experience something of the weight of our own sin, of the significance of God's holiness, of the extent to which his anger does indeed burn against the rebellion that we have chosen to enact. Right, he, he is so incredibly patient with you thinking that you know better than he does. He puts up with your selfishness He puts up with my apathy. He doesn't lash out against your gossiping or your lying or your greed. He is long suffering with your disregard for the vulnerable. But do not mistake his patience for affirmation. He does not conform to your standard of what you say is right. Because remember, if you're a believer, you are his priest which means that he tells you what is right all right so there there are some of you in here and you're listening and some part of you is hearing me say these words and it's going that's not fair that's not right And the reason I know that some part of you is sitting here responding like that is because I have been you sitting where you are right now. And in fact, even sometimes I am you. And and you're saying, who does God think he is? And the story, this story that we deal with today, it is here to cause us to ask two questions. The first question is this who is really God in my framework? Like for real, be honest with yourself. Who is really God in my framework? Is it a God who is just okay with whatever decisions I make and what I think is right? Is it a God who accepts my version of reality? If you think that's God, I challenge to consider for yourself that maybe what you've actually done if you, is you've just made yourself God, right? So who is really God in my framework? And this story is also here to cause us to ask a second question. How does God respond when his position is challenged? The answer is that question for us pretty clearly. It would be inappropriate of me, given the role that I have, to let you simply drift through life without considering the significance of these two questions. So verse three says this. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Think about this. Aaron just witnessed two of his four sons dying for doing what at least some part of them thought was good and right. Witnessed his two sons die. But the text here points out to us that Aaron knew not to object. Right? Aaron knew that what they had done was rebellious. He knew that they had disregarded God's word. So even though his gut wrenched over what had just happened, Aaron held his peace, it says verses 4 and 5. Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. So there's a problem, and that problem is you now have dead things in God's holy place. And death can't be there. And so, so God literally has to pull in additional people. The priests are right now sanctified. They're consecrated, right? They have the anointing oil poured over them. They have the blood from the ordination offering put on their ears and on their hands. Like they cannot break this consecration. And so God is calling in reinforcements to say, hey, we need to get somebody else in here to get the death out of the sanctuary because we are still in the midst of a process here. And so verse six and seven says this, and Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, his remaining sons, do not let let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. He's essentially saying, let the people of Israel mourn this loss right now. You're not going to mourn this loss. Don't go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is on you. What he's saying is you literally, you cannot grieve in this moment because I am still in the middle of giving you my instructions. So if there are people who are going to mourn this loss, it's gotta be other people. It can't be you because you are the priests. You are the ones that I am establishing to relate to me. He's saying, let me finish speaking. Make sure that you hear my word and you do what I say is right and not what you think is right. You keep listening to me. There will be a time for you to grieve and deal with that loss, but it is not now because you still have the responsibility to listen to my word. In verse seven, it says, and they did according to the word of Moses. Moses. Church, we should not regard God's graciousness and mercy as his willingness to acquiesce to sin. Right, he is being patient with us to give us opportunity to repent and inviting us again and again to repentance, but his patience and his mercy is not his acquiescence to sin. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31 says this. Sorry, 30 through 31. For we know him who said. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those are verses in the New Testament written to people who go to church, right? who who sit in church seats, who gather together in the body of Christ. And what it's telling all of us is that it is not our place to take the holiness of God lightly. We ought to be examining ourselves constantly to see whose version of right we're really listening to. Because if he is devastatingly holy, we are much better off letting him shape us in his image as opposed to attempting to shape him in our image. Okay, so what? So what? What do we do with all of this? First, a question. Will you look to your whims or to his word? Right, consider this reality. Because we have that that framework that we built. But I just want to go back and kind of rebuild the framework the way that he intended it to be built. Right, so let's start with the foundation, God. Right, we don't have life independent of him. He is the one who gives life. Right? Life starts with him. The foundation of everything starts with him. And from there, he defines reality. And from there, he says what is right. It's interesting, in the, like in the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1, it says God spoke and it came about, right? He, he spoke and reality was there. And then after that, at the end of each thing, each piece of creation that he makes, it says, and God saw that it was good, right? There you have creation developing reality and then God saying it is good. He is saying what is good and right. And so let me understand how I fit into that framework is that I am not the one who creates the framework. I'm the one who fits the framework. So that's that's uh, just an invitation to consider. And you might think of it like this for your whole life, but I would tell you that there are even small parts of your life where you still continue to operate under the other framework, right? And he's inviting us to examine all of our lives to make them fit with this framework. Number two, God's fire burns hot against rebellion. Will it be for your death or for your life? Right, so I think the story of scripture, what it's telling us is that God's fire will go to work on you one way or the other. Right, your first option is to continue insisting on your own way until you stand before God to explain to him how you make a better God than he does. And so you can imagine how that might go. But he has been so patient with people throughout history for the second option, right? The second option is that you would see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the good news and the death and resurrection of Jesus. He came from heaven to earth and lived a perfect life. Jesus hung on a cross bearing the weight of God's anger that is burning hot against sin. And he did that for your sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says, that he became sin. Like literally what is happening is that Jesus is becoming our rebellion, taking on himself all of the unique qualities, all of the unique ways that it works itself out in our lives so that God's anger might burn on him and so that anyone who trusts in him could be saved from God's anger, which burns against sin. And then he rose from death, proving that his salvation was strong enough to actually conquer death for us. Now, it doesn't stop there, though. Because from that point, something beautiful actually starts to take place. That fire, that fire that came out from the tent and consumed the altar and then consumed Nadab and Abihu in their rebellion, that fire, instead of becoming a thing that is threatening to your life, becomes a thing that inside of you produces life. The death of Jesus, so this is what happened. The death of Jesus, his blood, it was sufficient for the consuming fire of the Holy Spirit to come and take up residence inside of you. And now that you are covered in Jesus' blood, that fire is consuming you from the inside out. Right, so Holy Spirit is inside of you, living in you and pointing, pinpointing dead things in you that he wants out. right? And, and he's saying, stop putting up with it. And he's saying, uh, he's letting you feel the pain of persisting in your sin. And he's convicting you that through the fire, he might more fully shape you into the person that God has always wanted you to be. So if you believe in Jesus, God's fire is no longer against you unto death. God's fire is renewing you from the inside out unto life. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, and I'm going to end with this. Verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What he's saying, and he's kind of doing looking at two things. He's looking at the end of time when God is gonna wrap everything up and he's saying one more time, God is gonna shake everything and there are things that he has been building that are going to remain when everything shakes. It's like, uh, think of it like the fire, right? The fire is gonna burn up the chaff and what is strong will remain. The things that he has been building will remain, but it's not just simply what's going to happen at the end of time. He's drawing a connection here to what happens inside of you. There are things that he is building and doing inside of you, and he is shaking things to disrupt what is dead so that life can come out. So verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So for those of us who believe, it is really good news that he is a consuming fire. If you don't believe, though, or if you don't know where you stand with him, then the invitation to you today is to turn from your own way and place your trust in Jesus. Jesus. So that that fire, instead of being a thing that comes against you unto death, might be a thing that starts working in you from the inside out unto life. Would you pray with me, please? Oh Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word, which challenges us. Which causes us to see things in a way that we might not usually be inclined to see them so that we might be the kind of people who conform to what you want and not the kind of people who might make you conform to what we want. Lord, we trust you to continue shaping us into the image that you desire from us, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name.